Welcome to our live recording of Lean Back. I'm Laura. And I'm Lisa. Uh, and today we're going to explore the concept of enough um, or being good enough. And so Lisa, uh, I guess I kind of want to start by asking you, like this is kind of a broad existential question <laughs> to approach because I think it underpins a lot of our anxiety and a lot of like toxic feelings that we have about ourselves. So I'm wondering, like, how do you approach the concept of enough? Okay, so to begin with, it's a historical term of art that the psychologist, a child psychologist named D.W. Winnicott started writing about in the 50s. And the idea was around white women's anxieties about being good enough mothers. So already the idea of being good enough is hypergendered and extremely racialized and around a particular kind of labor practice that is mothering at a time when the United States is having both this inflated existential confidence about the end of World War II and then this massive amount of money from basically funding the rebuilding of Europe. And so it's sort of this idea of good enough happens at a time of inflated American exceptionalism and hyper consolidation of capital after World War II. And so that seems to me to be not incidental. It seems intrinsic to thinking about what it means to be good enough because it's coming out of a moment that is Jim Crow, it's prior to Brown v. Board, about the anxieties of motherhood and mothering in a time of rapid industrialization and social change. So it seems to me we need to talk, Laura, about two things. One is about good enough, and one is about not good enough. And I think both sides of those get weaponized in a bunch of different ways depending on race, gender, class, sex, sexuality, able-bodiedness that are actually quite different. I like that you start out with um, how it kind of originated with an interest in mothering. And uh, we talk about self-care on the podcast a lot. Um, and I think it's important to recognize that a lot of self-care focuses on like self-improvement, um, often with like products and like performances that are unattainable. And I think a lot of self-care literature is focused on the market of mothers. And I know like a lot of marketing agencies like pin new mothers as a point of like we can engage them in our brand because they're at a <laughs> transitional point. And they're totally so, paranoid and they're completely freaked out. And the culture doesn't support them so they're totally vulnerable. Right. Continue. Well yeah, there's not a lot of like community around raising kids. It's a, uh, largely an individual pursuit which is extremely unfortunate. And so you're left with like, how do I raise this kid by myself, alone, with like any range of resources? And definitely some people have more resources than others. So, so like what if you do if you're a single mother who doesn't have a lot of resources and um, you get flack for like leaving your kid at home for, you know, an hour after they get home from school? And how does that like translate to um, self-esteem? 
I mean, part of it is that it's not it's not a coincidence that the notion of being a good enough mother emerges in the post-war period because it's a it's a moment when white women in particular who had gone into the workforce were then pushed back out into Levitt towns and into these newly emergent suburbs. And so it was a way of creating both precarity and then a market to try and ameliorate precarity through a kind of literature that had always already existed in American life around white women's self-perception as good, as good, right? As agents of good, as agents of the nation or agents of their geography, in this case, the South, or as neighbors or as community members or as churchgoers or whatever. And so there is a sense in which I think, importantly, good enough is about manufactured precarity, full stop. Right? And when that precarity is manufactured as a constant thing, then it has to be fixed. It's very much like sin this way. Good enough is about sin. Right? You're marked with this stain from birth because girl, right? Because girl, hyperfeminized, gender binary girl is not good enough because marked by sin must fix totally deficient. And that notion of deficiency, I think, is extremely important to what happens at mid-century capitalism and thinking through the woman as an ideal category of anything. I mean, I think women in particular, it's hard for them to feel good enough because they're pulled in so many different directions. Like, they're expected to be a certain kind of mother um, or a mother at all. Like, Yes. <laughs> yes. <they're, laughs> And on top of that, they need to, like, look the part. They need to, like, be appeasing to certain people's expectations of how they should look. And on top of that, um, they need to do a bunch of emotional labor that um, men aren't expected to do. And so I, how do you become enough in all of those categories? Like, you're pulled in so many different directions. Well, in the 50s, you do it by oppressing black people. For sure, right? So part of the good enough thing is about what happens to the white women, especially in the South, but not just in the South, who are then recruited to perform white supremacy and hegemonic whiteness around desegregation, especially in schools. So the school child, the white school child, the ideal white school child becomes the terrain over which good enough mothers have to then right demonstrate their worth to the nation, and that is by excluding black and brown kids from public education. And so that notion of good enough is a historical thing. It transitions again in the 70s, right, as all of the stereotypes around black motherhood begin to circulate that did not exist earlier in the century around what is not ideal motherhood, right? And so those notions of good enough, especially as they're centered on motherhood, I think are organizing concepts for power. And so that works on a structural level in this way that we're talking about, about school segregation and about Levitt towns and suburbs and labor. But on a micro level, it happens around what gets internalized inside of non-men, all of the non-men, whether they're cis or not, all of the non-men, about what it means to be both good and enough. Right? And those, I think, are also two separate things. So what does it mean to be good in the culture? What does it mean to perform goodness? And then what does it mean to be enough? The other side is that what does it mean to be too much? So there is not good enough without excess. Right? So the deficit and the lack that is structured in to critiques of whiteness and gender and class and all of the money things 
also then exists because there is uh, an abundance. There's a question about being too much. So it's very much Goldilocks, right? Where is the medium porridge, right? It's either too hot or too cold. There is no medium, then everybody's trying to search for the medium, whatever that looks like. Yeah, I mean, that's part of why I hesitate to take this conversation in like a real uplifting direction. Like, be who you are, be comfortable. You know, that's a lot of self-help narrative. But like, if you're the subject of structural violence because of the color of your skin, it's there's a fraught relationship with like embracing that and like just being comfortable with that kind of violence that the state and that your peers may subject on you. So um, I definitely don't want to go in that in that uplifting direction. I like though that like, you know, knowing things about yourself, it allows you to provide a good critique to your culture. It's okay to say that like this world is not enough and it's okay to say that you're not getting enough from the government, from a lover, from a relationship, um, for a friend and, um, and that it's okay to long. But um, I think the pursuit of perfection or the pursuit of like meeting other people's expectations of you is really dangerous. I mean, the interesting stuff about the mid century discussion of good enough is that it's very much about perfection and the pursuit of perfection. And it's, it's actually a critique of perfection, which is I think odd because uh, the good enough trope forces right. Non-normative bodies towards a culture of overwork um, and I think that that's how people compensate for the constant pressure that they are not good enough because of the way that the culture marks certain bodies is inherently bad. And so then to overwork the body, whether that's about um, hypermanagement of food and body size or whether that's in labor and output or productivity, whatever the measures are that overwork starts to feel like a habit that is somehow combating good enough, is massively destructive, and if one one hundred percent is the handmaiden of, of capitalism in a way that is grossly anti-care. Period. Social care, solidarity, social justice, self-care. It's radically opposed to any notions of solidarity that we could manufacture. I think as a collective. Yeah, I mean, I think the pursuit of perfection is like pathological at a certain point. Yes, you're never going to be the prettiest or the smartest or the funniest. I do stand-up comedy. Do I wish I was the funniest person ever? Yeah. Is that possible? <laughs> no. Like, I've never even been the funniest person on a single show. You know, but that's okay. And I, I, the main thing is I think it's good to establish boundaries with yourself. If, you, if self-improvement is a thing that you're interested in, you have to set boundaries. Like, I will only spend X amount of hours mm -hmm. on this pursuit a day. I will only spend... 20 minutes a day putting on makeup or I will only spend X amount of dollars buying makeup, hair care products or I will only stay in the shop for a year if it doesn't make me feel engaged. So like just setting boundaries for yourself and like realizing that if you can't be or like achieve this certain perspective of perfection, which is usually set by someone else and not yourself, then you have to set a boundary. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, the culture of overwork, I think, is how people are managing um, the notion of good enough. And at least in the academy, everybody feels like an imposter. Uh, and I don't really understand that 
because I'm like, look around. We're surrounded by weirdos and fr- and assholes and failures. And I mean, it's just a cornucopia of bullshit. So I everybody sees that part and their Facebook feed is like, bullshit, bullshit, bullshit. And they're like, I hate my son the worst. I'm like, no, you have clearly identified who the worst are. Like, you actually already possess that skill set to be like, that is bad. We all agree this is horrible. I So I... I, this is not a thing, a perspective that I share, the imposter part. I, I, I don't know. I don't know if it's because I'm a debater and so I just like failed so fucking hard as a young person <laughs> that I'm sort of inoculated from it. I'm sort of being cavalier but also sort of not, right? When you have tried on every good idea you've ever had in a room full of people who want to hate fuck you, your attitude about failure changes pretty substantially by the time you get to be middle-aged. And so I don't know that if it's just that the culture is so like henny penny, the sky is falling, I can't let anybody fail, I can't fail, I have to be perfect. I don't know if it's that and there aren't opportunities enough to fail for little kids. I suspect that that's certainly the case in late capitalism now. I don't know if it was that way in the 50s. I suspect so for the white kids but not for everybody else. I was thinking about the other day about waiting at this bus stop and how fucked up that was as a kid. Not for me because I live in the country but like, Every after-school program is like, here's the shit that's going to happen to you at the bus stop. Like, it is the scariest place you will go in your lifetime. There is distributed risk at the bus stop that does not exist at the grocery store, a bunch of other places. Nobody's selling you drugs, right? In the mayonnaise aisle. But at the bus stop, all hell could break loose. And so, you know, there is just this moment to privatize, and, and that's about transportation and busing and segregation. You can draw your conclusions from that. There's a whole history of literature about it. But there is a sense in which we are not sharing space anymore, and so there is no social risk for huge swaths of the population, and then it's distributed massively to the poorest and most vulnerable, and that strikes me as extremely shitty. And so then you've got white fragility, right, which is like the conversation that's happening I think certain, it's been happening among people of color for like ever, obviously. But now I think white people are so like, oh, I am fucking fr- I'm so fr- all I want to do is cry all day. That is not a reasonable response to late capitalism. It's yeah. crying all day. We've got to do better than crying at home as the white person and distributing all the risk downwards to the poor people of color. Go ahead. Yeah. You talked about the bus stop because I do think a lot of this um, self-doubt originates as a young person. It's not just kids going to school that are being bused. Obviously, there are like large populations of people who rely on tra- uh, public transportation, and it's not a broad enough system to support them. So that sucks. But I, I think I like talking about um, public schools as a place where we're not doing right by kids, because like with all the bullying that goes on, and like it's uh, achievement oriented and very conformist. Um, it's really hard to create a sense of self in that place. And I just think there's a lot of room there to be better about recognizing individuals and uh, tackling bullying in a more serious way. And I don't know. It, it, I, it's, I'm on the wrong side of this, so I'm going to lead with that. But I just bullying is just like racism. And it's just like sexism. So I don't like bullying because it takes away the power dynamics that are actually happening around identity and makes it in a way it's like some like juvenile thing that's like a phase that people go through. And that's not, the literature is very clear that adults workplace mob and they bully at work too. And that's about race and class and sex and gender and class and status. And so I hate, I really actually dislike the bullying literature because I feel like it's um, ridiculous, if I'm being totally honest. That is not to say though that the social violence 
is the best way to learn about risk. I mean, on the podcast, we talk about play all the time. And, and so, you know, on the play episode, the very first season, I'm like, I play. That's what I do. I think that's why I can absorb so much risk is because I, you know, because of my body and my whiteness, but also my training, all of the shit for me is like, you know, whatever. And so then I fail. And so then what happens? I've already been poor. Poor as poor comes. I'm not afraid to be poor again, but I'm still white, right? So there's amount of risk that my white body can absorb the way that it is that allows me to take different kinds of, uh, I can make different kinds of decisions. And so the, the question is, if we're going to build so solidarity and justice, there has to be a way of creating playful risk spaces that are not racist and that are not sexist and homophobic and right transphobic and trashy and violent. And so what does that look like? And I think, you know, it, that's the structural part. But the internal part is what do we do with a bunch of people who feel like they are never going to be good enough? And that's a whole bunch of other stuff, right? The not good enough side is religion, and it's definitely white Christianity, not solely, but giant amounts of evangelical Christianity. It's purity culture, and it's shame, and it's a lack of education and the withholding of structural resources so that people know about, like, I don't know themselves, and blah, blah, blah. And so it's like, what do we do with the people who don't think that they're enough, and so they're just trapped in self-loathing, and they're shitty allies? Because they're everywhere, and I know that because you write about them on the Facebook all the time. And you know that they're around, right? I know you know who they are, who we are, who they are, yeah. We need to ease the fuck up on what we expect out of people. Ourselves. Yeah. And ourselves. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's just unreasonable. And I know this, I'm going to share a story that's just like a, represents a small piece of my experience, but like, it's good to set different kinds of expectations, you know, from students and like at an early age like one of my favorite things that a teacher ever told me I had like gotten the minimum amount of points in a class to get an A he was like just so you know I think this is the best grade in the class because you did just the exact amount of work to get this grade and literally nothing <laughs> extra and that's better than just like trying to like continually uh, reach this goal of like trying to be perfect at everything just like set a boundary and it's okay like if I had not reached that number that would have been fine you know but mm -hmm. it's unreasonable to like expect perfection all, all the time I mean it's also gender right so I started with like here's some motherhood shit that's about girls who make babies with men that is what it started out as so the idea, good enough is still a gendered thing where there is overwork that is specifically about non-cishet male bodies. Everybody else feels like they have to produce 10 times the amount of work. I'll say this as somebody who's an academic. I reviewed tenure five, I reviewed a bunch of tenure files this summer. And I will tell you that the difference between what men put out, right, to go up for promotion, especially white men, compared to everybody else shocked me. I was like, there's not enough bourbon in this town. Like this, the sausage is actually not even being made. This is not where it's made. You're not making it and you're not making it and you're not, there's no sausage here to be made. Like they do not have to overwork. They are not, definitely not the white men, heteros, cis hetero men, are not working themselves to death on the whole. They're not working so hard that they are on the hamster wheel crying about a tenth load of fucking laundry. They're not doing that. That's not a thing that's happening. They are not crying at night because they think that they are not enough because the whole culture tells them. Now, that's not the same for men of color. 
And it's not the same for trans men, it's not the same for queer men, but it is the case that culture holds up a different kind of good enough, right? C, right? You gotta pass the class of the C to move on to law school. You see it in your classrooms, those of you who are here who are, who are faculty members. So, you know, there is a sense at which to slow down capitalism, right? We all are gonna have to, to do less. White people have to do less and achieve less and set the bar in a different place because their achievement is being subsidized by black and brown pain in the workplace. And that is shitty. I mean, I've been in environments that like are competitive when it doesn't really make sense for them to be competitive, like waiting tables. Um, <laughs> not a competitive sport. Not, not no, a I mean, like, sport. There is a real thing where you can get better shifts, but like beyond that, it doesn't make sense to be like, perpetually competitive. You know, in those workplaces, I would raise concerns about like the working conditions and the working hours. And a lot of times, people I worked with would be like, I can handle it. So it's just fun. I can handle it. And I was like, uh, this isn't a fucking episode of The X Factor where we have to just, we take pride in enduring shit that is difficult. Eat your scorpions and love it. Yeah. Right? So I'm just like, if you'll stop for a second, uh, if you'll stop trying to outdo me, then we can work together and this place can be better for us to work together. Like this thing where you can handle this. Can you really though? Because <laughs> it's, I mean, maybe you can, but some of us have kids. Some of us have a second job. Some of us have different circumstances from, from you. And just because you can handle this doesn't mean everyone can. And we need to work together to improve it instead of trying to compete, trying to like undercut people who have situations that make it harder for them to compete with you. But the other thing is that goodness is individual, right? So that's the whole thing about the motherhood shit, right? Is that it's like, are you a good mom? You, you the individual, right? There's no like cooperate. That's the whole thing about the suburbs. It's like move away from the city. You have no right apartment complex to share childcare with, or where you can just walk downstairs and get your groceries, or right. All of that gets dispersed, and then there's no collaborative effort whatsoever. And there's no childcare at any of the shit you have to go to be a citizen, right? So it all becomes about this like Olympic trial of individuals. And so I think on the on the individual side of the power, not the structural side of power, then you've got a bunch of people who are just internalizing failure as somehow self-failure when it's really cultural failure, when it's really structural violence, not like, oh, obviously we were all we all had the same things, we could have achieved the same things, obviously it's all the same. I personally failed and did not produce the correct kind of child or whatever. And so, no, it, it's all hyper-competitive. And, you know... This, this is a thing that I've been thinking about a lot more lately because I'm watching people get promoted to leadership positions. And I'm just like, I mean, I just feel like collaboration is a skill set. And I would just like more people to have it. <laughs> like talk about what it means to collaborate more. Part of it is, is hard because capitalism and everybody's so busy and they're running on the hamster wheel and so they can't stop and learn the skill and they can't stop and do the thing and they can't la 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 Right? That's one thing. Uh, but the other side is that they're incentivized to not do that. They're paid more to not do that. So that's a stru that's a structural thing. So, but the fact that people internalize that as lovability or goodness, that then I think creates a ton of the anxiety and social discomfort that is much deeper and harder to eradicate because it's so it permeates everything. I think. Mm -hmm.
collaboration is a starting point. Also, intimacy. If you can recognize people, meet them where they're at, be kind when you can. I mean, there are a lot of ways to just move the needle away from that isolationist, uh, hyper-competitive bullshit. But there's a range, right, between survival and massive success. So that's a, there's a lot of space between hand-to-mouth and Beyonce or, right, or Federer or whatever, right? Trump, certainly. There's a huge gap there. And so it's like, we don't even see that as huge space. Part of that is because of the erasure of the quote-unquote middle class, which is always white and kind of imaginary anyway. But even the disappearance of it as a meme means that people are imagining themselves as having more social power and access than they do have. That seems like a problem if you're trying to create public policy because then people want to dissociate with the place that they're actually in socially and they can't see how they're being fucked. It's then it's very hard to mobilize them to social justice or any kind of like political outcome that's collaborative because they don't want to be the poor or they don't want to be the whatever, right? And so they dissociate. So like even from a psychological perspective, dissociation is a, is a real problem, right? Dissociation is a, is a disorder. So that's also the case socially as like a political space to occupy. So it's not even just that people feel unlovable or ungood in roles that are foisted upon them as necessarily exceptional. It's that they're internalizing them as pathologies that only capitalism can cure. So go buy the book or go see the Netflix special or if you just get this kind of X, Y, and Z and if your insurance covers it or not, right? All from the clinical all the way to the hyper consumerist, there's a wide range there then of behaviors that are supposed to ameliorate problems that are a lot of them structurally created. Like they're, they're intended outcomes. The alienation is the intended outcome, you know? I mean, that's a valid reaction, though. Yes, like, if you correct. personally feel alienated, I think that's valid. And that you have, like, a reasonable orientation to being Yeah, that's upset. a legitimate grievance. Yeah. Legitimate grievance. What do you, some, I walked into class yesterday, first day of class, and the students are like, how are you doing? I'm like, capitalism is getting me down. Here we are, back doing it. Which I thought was honest, and, you know, I was trying to be charming and not shitty about it, but also it's true. <laughs> so what are we doing? I'm capitalisming. Here we are. We're doing the thing. It's hard, too. I mean, like, it comes from every side, and we spend so much time on social media. We see all this hyper-curated stuff. I feel like it's getting worse and worse. I get anxious if I'm, like, a little sweaty, because, like, no one is sweaty on Instagram. <laughs> Maybe they like glisten or something. But sheen. It's called a sheen. Okay, yeah. They glow. Yeah. They glow. That's and right. And like you're glow. looking at pictures of people who have used Facetune, and you know, if you just take a picture of yourself and you're not really aware of like the time and energy and the expensive makeup and the fact that they like storyboarded their Instagram posts for like a month in advance, like if you don't see all the work behind that and you just like think someone posted an off the cuff picture of them that looked at sexy as hell and then you take a picture of yourself and you're like what's wrong with me i mean you know? the, here's the thing you know i am it's very rare that i'm surprised but a thing that surprises me as a grown-up is that people think that bodies aren't weird <laughs> i'm like you are a grown-up i don't how is that what the fuck do you are you drinking that you think that yours is not weird it is weird that's like a baseline so what, like, what kind of effort goes into that every day to be like, 
I am not weird. I'm the least. No, you are. You are not the least weird. You, so right? Like, how much energy goes into, I am so not good enough that I am definitely the best. My shit is not weird. I can't even, I can't even fathom the amount of energy that goes into that. I find it, I find it shocking, quite frankly. I get really freaked out by people who are not self-conscious, who are, like, super confident. Oh, yeah. I'm like, what's wrong with you, actually? <laughs> I mean... I've had the displeasure of working with a couple of pathological narcissists who are in positions of power, which is... And awesome. Which well, is awesome. <laughs> Am I right? It's an interesting thing to observe because they just... They never question themselves, you know? And it's weird to see someone like... I question myself constantly. And it's weird to see the complete opposite. They don't... I mean, they're, like, aggressive and they're bullies, obviously, because they never think. Um... <laughs> Because they never, full pause, thing. Um, <laughs> but, you know, but that has a caveat, which is, like, they are never, like, am I treating this person kindly? You know, they don't see beyond beyond themselves. So there are certain aspects where questioning yourself is a, a good quality. I think people who don't question themselves are probably narcissists. I think the thing about it is that if you can't accurately map yourself, you're not going to be able to map with other people. So if you're like, I'm a fucking mystery to myself every day, why, why don't people understand me? You, you are missing the thing. And I say that not from a space of judgment. That's a fact. Like, if you, if you cannot mind map yourself and be like, self, here are the things I care about. Here are the things that I want. Here are the things I'm going to do. Here are the things I'm not going to do. Here are the things I'm ambivalent about. Uh, here are the things I'd like to try in this order, maybe. Here are the things I'd always like to avoid. If you can't say, if you can't answer those questions about yourself, it seems to me wild that you would expect somebody else to be able to fill those blanks in for you. It's like users. I come from a car family, right? And they have users' manuals that tell you how the things work, how to replace the thing, how to augment a thing, how to make it better. The I can you go you can find a YouTube about it. So it's like find a YouTube. It's like how to mind map the self, right? But there's no conversation about that because we don't have the interiority and we don't do the intimacy. And so people don't think about themselves that way. And so they're just like atoms smashing into each other, right? Trying to connect but with no, no sense whatsoever about how the things attach or don't attach or attach poorly or half attach or break away or any of the other ranges of things. And so then when the thing does not work out, it's like I'm a fuck up. Well, I mean, yes and no. The culture did not give you the tools to attach properly. There's no reason to self-loathe about it exactly, but like there are there are some useful texts on that particular topic about how to know the stuff. So it's like you can't start knowing. In some cases, you know, it's a collaborative thing. Knowing about yourself comes through relationships with others. Obviously, Winnicott starts with the mother and child bond. I have some problems with that as a Freudian thing, but okay, fine if we're going to start there. But Beyond that, we stop reading and thinking about humaning in relation to others until we think about romance and then it's all fucked by a bunch of, you know, how to give your man a bunch of blowjobs. I think the best way to approach that question is with boundaries. Because I know when I answer those questions, I'm like, well, I want to be the best at this and I want to be this and this. And I can get like overwhelmed trying to create too many expectations for myself. So, um, answering that kind of question requires, I think, that you are like, okay, um, I'm interested in this thing, but I'm only willing to invest in it as far as this point, you know? So, 
it's not a thing where it's like, well, who am I? You know, what do I want to do? Um, it's like, you know, how much can I commit to this? And how much will I let it affect my life? I think the worst side of that sort of formulation, though, is extraction. How much can I get out of a thing? And if I'm thinking about this political moment, it's all about political extraction. What can you do for me? How much can I extract out of you? How much labor can I can I get from you? How much can you socially promote me? How much social capital do you have? How many people can you network me to? It's all extraction. And I was saying to somebody the other day, I feel like people are just like fracking their way through relationships, right? I feel like I feel like you know, Grinder is that way. I feel like Tinder is that way. I feel like. We can't even call it dating anymore. Whatever you... It's like... Marginally fucking buying. around sometimes, maybe. Thing. Whatever you're going to call that, right? <laughs> that, all of that, is about extraction, right? And it's one way. It's not reciprocal. It's not collaborative whatsoever. It's not intimate. It's anti-intimate. Yeah, it's just like buying something on Amazon. It's like easy, <laughs> convenient. Yeah. Dating. It's which not is, dating. I, uh, no. we, we have to do, I just feel like we have to retire that word. Like, cancel culture, like we're canceling dating. It is way over. It's not a thing that people are doing. Am I wrong about this? I might be too old. But I'm, it's not happening. Joy's like I'm out. I have no data. No data set. Couldn't can neither confirm nor deny. In this conversation about good enough and not good enough, we probably do have to talk about self-esteem. Um, I mean, we've glossed it, but I'm kind of happy that self-esteem has kind of a broader conversation um, as like an objection to like the hyper curated social media feeds. Like I think we're in a Lizzo moment, which I'm happy about. <laughs> um, and I think that um, people are kind of reclaiming the idea of I'm fine and like I am. I don't need to please you in any particular way. You know, you can't be everything to everyone all the time. I mean, also, the thing about, we are in a Lizzo moment. Did we watch the video of music with this from Mix-a-Lot ass? Um, so I, I like the intertextuality of the blow-up ass, if I'm being honest about it. This, okay, so we're doing some intertextual thing and we're flipping the scripts. Fine, okay, great. What, what I like about Lizzo is that she's not she's not 48% that bitch, right? She's like totally, she's like, I'm 100% that bitch. So there, I th I, there's, there is a, a certainty that I think she's trying to use as an antidote to a lot of this good enough stuff that I find very interesting as, as a rhetorician, as a strategy of engaging good enough. Also, the other side of it is excess. So she is mobilizing both good enough and excess at the same time to create a different kind of social space for herself, certainly, right? She talks a lot in her interviews about, like, Here's how I'm managing my self-esteem, and if I did not do it this way, I would be dead. And that is honest and useful and vulnerable and intimacy. And then also doing that for huge populations around the world and taking up a different kind of physical, aesthetic, social, gender, sex space. So we are in Elizabeth. It's very interesting to read her against Trump's excess as a fascist, as a violent white nationalist neo-Nazi fascist, Right as a response to a particular kind of nation, nationalism, hyper-masculinity, heterosexuality, right? Sexual assaulty, pussy-grabbing, trash monster. I like the message, like, uh, your best is, like, pretty damn good. You know, like, it's a, you don't have to get better than pretty damn good. 
I don't know. I, you know, I'm thinking about leaning back, right, in relationship to good enough or enough or excess or too much. Um, and I think that the people who lean in are producing too much. So they are overproducing. They're overproducing whiteness. They're overproducing femininity. They're overproducing white power. They're overproducing. They're taking up too much space, blah, whatever. They're, they're taking up too much. Um, and I think that for me, at least, when I think about lean back, you know, we, I talk about play a lot because somebody's like, do you, do you love being an academic? And I'm like, really, I only care if people laugh. I, the rest of it is just my job that keeps me alive and feeds me. You know, I like it well enough. There are worse jobs. I've seen them. I don't want to do them. So I feel very lucky about it. But do I, feel, I don't feel romantic about higher ed. And I just feel like leaning back, though, helps me appreciate that the, the communal laugh and the joy and the fucking around in public and that part, I'm way more into than the, the other part of it. And so for me, lean back as an orientation is very much about getting a different kind of read on good enough and too much that are more manageable and, you know, more boundaried and more, not even achievable, but more about ontology, about the actual self and what it could be capable of, right, because of imagination, not because of structural impediments. And I think if you let go of, like, needing to be good enough for other people or your job or a certain relationship that isn't, um, supporting you, then like, if you abandon that idea of like trying to be more for those kinds of people, you can open yourself up, you know, for connection with people who can meet you where you're at. <laughs> 